When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes, and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello and welcome to the Red Box podcast. This is Carol Walker sitting in for Matt Chorley. On the podcast today, we're talking political dynasties. How many of them do we have in British politics and how much influence do they have? But first, our columnist panel today is Rachel Sylvester of The Times and Rachel Cunliffe of The New Statesman. The government thinks it is effectively too late to impose restrictions. Uh, It is a gamble in the Times today. We've heard that ministers believe there is nothing in the data to support further COVID restrictions, as scientists suggest that infections may peak before new measures would even have an impact. Um, Rachel Sylvester, do you think Boris Johnson's gamble is going to pay off? Well, it's too soon to say, isn't it? But it is an enormous risk. And I think the problem for the Prime Minister is that it's very hard to avoid the suspicion that he's not made this decision on the basis of the facts and the national interest. But he's nervous about having another showdown with his backbenchers and having another rebellion in the House of Commons if he did try to introduce more restrictions. And I think there's a real kind of danger for the government because the pandemic has been, if you like, the the firewall between all the allegations about Downing Street parties and wallpaper and who paid for what. Uh, And the pandemic has been something on which the voters really want to trust the government. But if that starts to fall apart, then politically, that's incredibly dangerous for um, the Prime Minister. Uh, Rachel Cunliffe, I mean, perhaps those parties and that political pressure, how much do you think they weighed on the Prime Minister's mind as he decided to wait and keep looking at the numbers? 
I think they probably had a huge impact because you look at the timing. Uh, yes, obviously it, it was a gamble, but it was a gamble in the past tense. Uh, a lot, even the, the medical experts now are saying that introducing new measures now wouldn't be that effective because the, the wave is already well on its way. If you look at the case numbers somewhere like London, it's basically a vertical line. Uh, so if we were bringing in new restrictions, the time to have done it would have been a few weeks ago, a month ago before Christmas, pretty much exactly when all those revelations about Downing Street parties were starting to break. So it, I think it very much was a political decision, uh, or at least partly based on the political news cycle at the time when the Prime Minister really, really looked like he was in trouble. And unfortunate timing as well, because it was right before Christmas. And I feel like even though it's, it's an arbitrary date, but as a nation, having had ca Christmas cancelled last year, we were all trying to push towards that goal. And I, I think that probably had an impact too, if, if it had been been, uh, if, if we've been seeing those early case numbers rising the way they were in sort of mid-November now, you might have a different political reaction. Yeah, I mean, Steve Barclay, who's one of those team of ministers who are looking at this, saying he doesn't think the data supports new curbs at this stage. I mean, Rachel, the danger is if they have indeed missed the opportunity to try and suppress the cases, and there is um, a big increase in more serious cases ending up in hospital, just as, as we've been hearing, there are huge shortages, um, then that could be quite a, quite a problem for the government, couldn't it? Well, exactly. And it isn't just about the sort of severity of the cases of people who are hospitalised. Um, it's also about staff shortages in hospitals, in the NHS, in schools, in those sort of key uh, sectors like delivery drivers, uh, bin men, etc. Um, so it's about people being off work, even if the symptoms are relatively mild. So there are sort of two factors at play here. Um, and I think that what the government is gambling is that Omicron is less severe and that people won't be so, um, you know, there won't be so many severely ill people in hospital. Um, but there are other risks involved anyway with people being, being off work with milder symptoms. And uh, Rachel Cunliffe, if that does happen, Labour still seem to be saying, well... The government should have acted sooner. It should have prepared for schools a bit sooner. But Labour are not even calling for more restrictions at the moment. No, and Labour certainly weren't calling for a pre-Christmas lockdown either. So I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, the, the, the opposition opposes what the government's doing. I'm not sure that's particularly newsworthy. I think it's important to remember that this is a different type of health crisis than the one we were facing a year and a half ago or even a year ago. So there's a very big difference between there's a new virus, there's a pandemic, it's clearly very serious, lots of people are ending up in hospital, we don't know very much about it, we don't have vaccines, we don't have effective treatment, so now we're going to implement a, a full kind of nationwide lockdown, to saying there is this virus, it's very transmissible, it's not very nice, uh, a much smaller number of people are going to end up in hospital, and those who do end up in hospital, uh, we've seen in the data, are in, are in hospitals for a much shorter time, they're released earlier, there are treatments, 80% of our population is vaccinated, but it's still a high risk uh, to, to our nation because of, as Rachel Sylvester was saying, staff shortages. And if you don't have enough doctors and nurses, then that puts pressure on the health system in another way. Now, that is still a very serious public health problem, but it is a different public health problem to what we were facing in March 2020. And 
to reach for lockdowns and, and, and restrictions in the way we did in March is not necessarily the right solution. Now, I think what's more damning for the government than, than not moving on restrictions before Christmas is this testing fiasco, because uh, if you have people who have come into contact with a, a positive case and they can't access the tests they need to show that they're still negative, partly because you've got anxious people who are testing themselves four times a day just to make sure they don't have it, uh, partly because there are logistics challenges in getting the tests to the right people. That is going to create pressure on the health system and on other key sectors, not because of the virus itself, but because people are forced to stay at home and self-isolate. That's a different public health challenge and it has a different solution. Uh, And now we've got uh, secondary school pupils all uh, having to be tested regularly. And the one restriction that has been brought in is on secondary school pupils wearing masks in the classroom. Rachel Sylvester, I know you've been talking to a lot of people in the education sector as part of the uh, the Times uh, Education Commission. Do you think this is a sensible step given uh, the numbers that we're seeing or are you concerned about the effect it's going to have on kids in the classroom? Well, for me, and I think for many of the people I've been speaking to in the education world, the most important thing is keeping the schools open. So children have lost months of learning and there's been a disproportionate impact as well on the more disadvantaged children um, and also a, a spiralling mental health crisis among the young when schools were closed. So I think the most important thing is to keep those schools open. And if that means children wearing masks, for me, that's a pretty small price to pay to be honest. Um, But I think, again, the problem is going to be um, whether there's enough uh, teachers. Uh, If teachers are, um, you know, test positive and then have to isolate, then that's going to cause huge issues. Um, So I think there are now real questions, again, about what's going to happen with exams, which are only, you know, four or five months away, really. Um, how is that going to work out? Is the government really saying that children are going to sit the exact same exams as they would have done? Or, you know, they're saying they'll have some some sort of um, uh, watered down version. But how is that going to work if children continue to lose um, lessons between now and May, June? Um, mm. How seriously can we really go ahead with the exams in their current form? Yeah, and ministers seem to be saying that, oh, yeah, they're very confident exams will go ahead. But I mean, Rachel, cut if we have heard that before. This is now the third year running when ministers are confident that the exam system, whatever will happen, will be OK. Well, the first year was a disaster and the second year only wasn't a disaster uh, because the, the government basically let schools decide grades entirely on their own. And that wasn't ideal for pupils either. This is obviously the third school year of disrupted education. So there are going to be people who are taking their A-levels this summer, or meant to be taking their A-levels this summer, who were caught up in the GCSE fiasco of 2020. So incredibly heartbreaking and challenging for those peoples. Um, On masks, I agree with Rachel Sylvester that it's a a small price to pay for keeping the schools open. And the most crucial thing is that the schools stay open. It's just a little bit it's unsettling to see 12-year-olds kept in masks all day throughout their school day when office workers who are still going into the office, even though the guidance is to work from home, that's not the law. They don't have to wear them. If you're on the tube, technically people do have to wear them, but a lot of them aren't, including TFL staff. Um, and when you look also at the issue of ventilation, which we know is one of the most uh, impactful ways that you can stop the, the transmission of, of COVID, and a lot of schools are in poorly ventilated buildings 
things. Um, the government is finally saying, oh, yes, we'll provide 7,000 air cleaning units to education settings. Well, there are about 25,000 schools in England alone, uh, let alone how many classrooms. And again, you think it's been two years. We could have put a lot of the effort that we've spent arguing about masks into proper ventilation in schools, which would help keep everyone safe, uh, children and, and, and staff as well. And instead, we're relying on the mask measures, which is effective, but does have an impact on their learning. Yeah, and we, we've been hearing throughout the pandemic uh, how so many young lives have been affected by uh, so many different aspects of it. I, I mean, Rachel, uh, Sylvester, th- there is something, isn't there, when they're being expected to wear masks all day, which, I mean, anyone who has to wear a mask for any great length of time knows that, yeah, of course it may be a sensible measure, and if you're going on a short train or a tube journey, it's not too bad, but to wear it all day in the classroom, I just wonder how difficult this is going to be for pupils trying to learn and indeed for teachers trying to make sure that their their pupils stick to the rules. Mm. And of course, the sort of personal interaction in the classroom is so important, and that is much more difficult if half your face is covered. But I think there was a real problem for months at the beginning of the pandemic. It was this whole debate about lives versus livelihoods. You know, was it going to be the economy or was it going to be the health of the nation that was most important. And life chances of young people were completely ignored um, to a scandalous extent, really. Um, Whereas at least now, uh, ministers are saying that the real priority is to keep the schools open. I think that is to be welcomed, that at least uh, young people are being factored into, you know, in a very significant way to the debate in a way that they weren't to start with. And even if that means wearing masks, which I agree isn't ideal, at least it's being taken seriously for, the, for you know, for, for once. Um, let's just turn to the issue of uh, migrants coming across the channel. I mean, the latest figures show that um, there were only, there were almost 30,000 who crossed the channel in small boats last year. Um, that's more than uh, triple the figure um, of the previous year of um, 8,400. Um, the Times is reporting today that officials are working on plans for a deal to tackle this later in the year, but that the government's given up hope of reaching an agreement with France before the elections in April. Um, Rachel Cunliffe, do you think that, um, as in this as well, the politics has got in the way of it, uh, Emmanuel Macron's coming up for election? Well, I don't think it's surprising, really. We know that when we have an election campaign, the the rhetoric of of the government steps up. We want to show that we've got great relations with all the countries that we're good friends with and that we're being tough on all the countries that we're not so sure about. Um, And the idea that other countries might have an election and not do the same thing is is quite naive. So, yes, Emmanuel Macron is up for re-election and being tough on the British over migrants, channel crossings, over fishing rights, over Brexit and negotiations with the EU. That is all part of, of his of his campaign and his image as the leader of France and we shouldn't be surprised by that uh, and I think the fact that we the government does seem a bit unnerved by it is is, is surprising given that this is fairly obvious that, that was going to happen. Um, I think it's worth remembering as well that even though migrant crossings across the channel in those boats are up actual total numbers of, of migrants coming to, to the UK and, and asylum seekers are down in, in, in the last couple of years. So this is a very visible, very tragic uh, portrayal of the problem and is definitely something that we need to tackle. And it's definitely something that'd be really, really good if we had better relations with France, which hopefully will come after 
April. Uh, but holistically, the picture is a little bit different. Um, Rachel Sylvester, I mean, we saw the terrible deaths of 27 migrants uh, last November. And uh, there were then these talks and everyone agreed something should be done about it. And then, I mean, Boris Johnson and President Macron were exchanging further barbs within hours. Yeah, and it was all sort of diplomacy via Twitter, wasn't it, with Boris Johnson issuing letters um, that had been sent to the French on on Twitter. I think that what's so fascinating to me is that if you think about the Brexit uh, campaign promise that it was all about taking back control, in the end, what this shows is you can't operate as a country in isolation from other countries. It's impossible for what Britain to take back control unilaterally. You need to work with other countries, in this case, France, if you're going to get anything done. And there's this sort of illusion of um, Brexit being the moment to take back control. It was never really possible. Um, and this has just highlighted how impossible that is. That was Rachel Sylvester of The Times and Rachel Cunliffe of The New Statesman. Up next, we're talking political dynasties. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Now it's time for this. Now, when we think of political dynasties, often we think of the United States, the Bushes, the Clintons, the Kennedys. But how has the British political landscape been affected by its own political families? Do they operate in the same way as their US counterparts? Well, in a moment, we'll hear from two MPs with impressive political family trees. But first, I spoke to Brenda Van Koppenel from the University of Essex, who told me how significant political dynasties have been in British politics throughout history. Well, um, political dynasties have been uh, quite important, particularly uh, historically over time. Uh, In the past, political dynasties were very important, uh, of course, in the House of Lords, but also in the UK House of Commons. Um, So, for example, in the early 19th century, about half of the UK uh, Commons would have a relative uh, in Parliament afterwards. So that's a close family relative or a relation uh, by marriage. Um, These days, of course, these proportions have strongly declined. And these days, uh, they're still around, uh, but they're about 5% uh, of the commons. So if you look back to those days uh, a couple of centuries ago, when you had half of the commons um, basically there because of their relatives, this was because the political system was very different in those days, wasn't it? And it was to do with um, your your position in, in society and the title that you had. 
Yeah, for sure. Um, modernization is an important part of the explanation why they're less important maybe today. Um, because of course, in those days, uh, the individuals who would be good candidates to serve in parliaments uh, were necessarily more limited uh, to people who were uh, from privileged backgrounds and had um, um, elite educations, etc. Um, and so, yes, through our time, uh, those have um, that, that pool has widened and there are more individuals now qualified to run uh, as candidates. And, and uh, that can be um, good alternatives for voters um, and for parties uh, to nominate. How much was this to do with basically the aristocracy, that it was a very much an upper class thing? Well, what I studied was the commons. So what is particular about that is, of course, that you still need to win election uh, to catch uh, to to enter uh, parliament in the commons. And though uh, a lot of aristocratic families were involved in politics and they often saw it as a sort of honor uh, to, to, to serve uh, their country. Um, there, um, there, there were other families as well, um, and dynasties were also uh, created among those that did not necessarily have those uh, long-established aristocratic connections. Because there are some Labour dynasties, aren't there? I'm thinking of the Bens. Tell us a bit more about that side of the house. Well, there are uh, dynasties across all parties, um, particularly in those parties that have been around long enough so that we are able to observe uh, that relatives have entered. Um, and so, yes, we also have some examples uh, like the, the family Ben, for example, um, who have uh, had relatives in the 19th century already um, and who have still uh, some, some um, members of the family in Parliament today. Yeah, Hilary Benn is still there, of course. Uh, 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 Anthony Wedgwood Benn, as he was, had to renounce his title to sit in the Commons. How much difference do you think it makes or made to voters having a recognisable family name? Well, it's very hard to say because uh, whenever you see someone elected, it's hard to, to really understand or know why uh, individuals have voted uh, for a specific individual. Um, of course, it has a lot to do uh, with uh, who is nominated for a certain seat in the first place. Um, but parties would also not nominate uh, political dynastic candidates um, if they weren't uh, good at getting votes. And so I think part of the explanation is certainly um, that voters may prefer dynastic candidates because uh, they may be um, or they may be of higher quality or they may give them more information about what to expect once they're in uh, office um, than otherwise uh, equally qualified other candidates. And is it just a British thing or even an English thing? I mean, it does happen in other countries. I'm thinking of the Bushes in America. But do we see political dynasties in other parts of the world? Yes. Uh, so, no, it's not at all a typically a British thing, maybe in the past, but not uh, no longer today, uh, for sure. Uh, we see this in uh, all systems, in all um, democracies. And we actually don't we don't really know much about uh, why that is. Um, so my uh, colleague of mine, uh, Professor uh, Daniel Smith at Columbia University, uh, compared a few countries. Um, and uh, in that comparison, at least the UK is um, rather at the lower end um, of uh, political dynasties uh, in, in the elected parliament. And do you think it is a good thing that we now have far fewer political dynasties than we used to have? Well, for sure, um, I think um, at the individual level, there may be a lot of reasons why dynastic candidates um, are good politicians and why people prefer them. Otherwise, they wouldn't be uh, voted into parliament in the first place. 
In the aggregate, I wonder if it's maybe a little bit worrisome, particularly as um, society increases in diversity. And um, as I mentioned, the, the pool from which uh, candidates could be selected widens um, over time. It may be um, a little bit more problematic for representation in the aggregate um, in that respect, um, as people observe um, that um, more and more um, politicians are not uh, like them. How much of it do you think is just people growing up in political families and thinking that, well, that's something I could do too? That's for sure a large part of the explanation. So it's the fact that um, dynasties or dynastic candidates tend to grow up in families, talk about politics at the dinner table. They're more motivated maybe than uh, other individuals, uh, particularly when democracies are still young and their families might have been involved in the establishment of democracy in the first place. So they have all kinds of reasons to be in politics um, and they're often um, um, very motivated as well um, to, to be there. Uh, so I think it's a large part of the explanation for sure uh, why they tend to put themselves forward more easily um, um, for, for, for selection, I mean, and um, why they're also more successful. Um, of course, we see dynasties in all kinds of professions, um, but we tend to see that politics is still a little bit uh, at the higher end of dynastic professions. This is Times Radio. Welcome back. And we're talking about political dynasties. I'm delighted to be joined by two MPs who know a lot about them from first-hand experience. Uh, Sir Nicholas Soames was the Conservative MP till 2019, uh, grandson of Winston Churchill, of course. Sir Nicholas, a very good morning and Happy New Year to you. Good morning and the same to you, Carol. Thank you so much. And also with us is Sir Geoffrey Clifton-Brown, who is Conservative MP for the Cotswolds and uh, has, uh, I think, at least seven former MPs in his family. Uh, good morning and Happy New Year to you, Sir Geoffrey. Yes, good morning, Carol. Happy New Year to you. Um, Nicholas, let me start with you. Uh, not only are you the grandson of probably the most famous and um, greatly revered political leader of our, our country has ever known, uh, Winston Churchill, of course, leader during the war, prime minister again afterwards, but your father also, um, Christopher Soames, was a cabinet minister and your your great grandparents were also um, politicians. I mean, was there a moment when you first realised um, that you were growing up in a in a pretty extraordinary political dynasty? No, uh, there absolutely wasn't. And and um, you know, I started my life. I left school. Um, uh, I went straight for a soldier. I was in the army for eight years, um, and um, then I went to work in the city. And whilst I was there, I think um, I decided that I very much wanted to to go into politics. And of course, politics had been in my life, because as you say, my father uh, was a very distinguished conservative politician, and it had been around me and with me all my life. But it wasn't what I set out to do, nor what I ever thought I would do, I don't think. And we'll come back to what it was like growing up uh in that family in just a moment. But Sir Geoffrey Clifton-Brown, um, perhaps people listening will be less aware of your uh, political heritage. Um, you, you have, I think it is, seven former MPs in your family past. It's hello. I, well, I have eight, including one by marriage, uh, uh, including two speakers. Uh, Speaker Clifton-Brown, who had to keep uh, Sir Nicholas's uh, grandfather in order when he... Um, 
uh, was no longer prime minister after the war, which was, uh, I gather, quite a task. And then uh, there was uh, his daughter married the next but one speaker, Sir Harry Hilton Foster. So, yes, we've, we've had a long association with Parliament going back to 1846. And the interesting thing was that apart from uh, Sir William Brown, uh, the original MP who, was, uh, who founded Brown Shipley's Bank, they were nearly all military men. My grandfather commanded his regiment. Uh, sadly, unlike Sir Nicholas, I was not a, not a soldier, and I regret that. But they were so they were men who'd done a lot in their lives and seen a lot of action uh, before they came into Parliament. And I think that's very important that members of Parliament should have some outside experience. Um, uh, Sir Nicholas, what was it like growing up in a family like that? I mean, was there a lot of political conversation around uh, the dinner table every night and at family gatherings at Christmas and so on? No, I'm afraid it was disappointingly normal. Um, um, I come from a very united family, a very happy, I was had a most wonderful childhood um, in which my grandparents played uh, a large part in that we lived um, in, in, in the same part of the world as they did and saw a great deal of them. But, you know, I, I really think this dynasty thing is, is quite overdone in many ways. I mean, I, you know, you make what you can of your life, don't you? And we, it doesn't make any difference who your antecedents are. At the end of the day, um, a man or a woman is assessed on what they do or they don't do in the course of their lives. And where they come from and who they are is irrelevant almost today. Um, it is true that, the, that um, Sir Geoffrey's family, very distinguished family, political family, and these dynasties, so-called dynasties, do exist. You look at the Salisbury family, um, who've been in the public service of this country since the reign of Queen Elizabeth I. Um, the Wedgwood Benz, Hilary Benn, probably the finest speaker I ever heard in my 36 years in the House of Commons, is the son and grandson of a, a very considerable politi politician. And then you have the current Duke of Wellington in the House of Lords, again, a, a family producing many, as Geoffrey said, of soldiers and politicians, who has recently greatly distinguished himself in the House of Lords by trying to make sure that our water is not polluted by sewage. I mean, these are people who do a good job and they do it because they have a sense of duty and some of them have a sense of obligation and some of them just think they're going to be good at it. Uh, so, Geoffrey, what about you when you were growing up? Did you um, talk a lot about politics uh, uh, over family um, gatherings and lunches and dinners and so on? Oh, absolutely. My father wasn't a member of parliament. My grandfather was, but my father was a, a councillor for 50 years and literally... Uh, from my very earliest memories, everything stopped at six o'clock to watch the black and white uh, news uh, on the on the BBC. And then inevitably there would be some comment afterwards. So I, at, at my earliest possible childhood, I suppose politics was there being discussed. But I totally agree with Sir Nicholas. It, it, it's not really the dynasty that counts. It's the individual and what the individual can achieve for their constituency and for their country. And, and that is what I really focus on. And do you think, though, that having that name, did it help or was it a hindrance, Geoffrey? Um, no, I think it was a bit of a help because there was a name recognition. Everybody, when I first got into Parliament, was much closer to when the Speaker had been in office. 
And of course, my great aunt was convener in the House of Lords. She was uh, Sir Harry Hilton Foster's um, wife, and she was convener for a long time in the House of Lords, and she was very, very well respected. So in the sense that it gave name recognition, it was an automatic door opener. But after that, you have to make it on your own. Yeah, I mean, Sir Nicholas, when you things have clearly changed quite a lot since you first entered Parliament, which was uh, well nearly forty years ago now. But do you think in those do you think in those days that having that name recognition, having that uh, family heritage, uh, helped? Look, uh, I, I'm absolutely convinced it did, um, and and certainly I'm very. Um, I was very proud and, and honoured um, to be part of it. And I think that it did help in terms of selection. In other words, I think people, um, if they knew, they I, I got an interview in a couple of seats, I think, probably because of my connection. And of course, then people are terribly disappointed when they meet the real thing and understand that it's nothing to do with what went before. Um, so I think you just have to take it on the chin, really. Um, in some cases, it's um, a tremendous, it's always a tremendous honour and, and something that no one can take away from you. But on the other hand, people look to you and say, well, what the hell's he ever done? And you, did know, you... you have to make your own way. And, and, and um, you know, um, as Jeffrey uh, Tifton Brown discovered, and we all discover when we arrive in the House of Commons, you're the newest of new boys or new girls, and you count for very, very little until you've made your way and your name and your your reputation on the floor and in the House of Commons. And did you ever feel, Sir Nicholas, that the, the weight of expectation on you almost, that um, people would perhaps know that, you know, your father had been in the cabinet, your grandfather was uh, a, a political leader revered on all sides. I mean, did you ever feel almost daunted by that, thinking that there was almost very hard for you to live up to their huge achievements? Well, of course I did, because I was very conscious that I wasn't in their league. Uh, I, remember, I, I remember one particular thing. My, my, my Churchill grandfather was Secretary of State for war, and my father was Secretary of State for War, and I ended up as the equivalent Minister for the Armed Forces, which is the, the same job as the Secretary of State for War. And it was only then that I really did feel that I was treading in very big shoes indeed. Um, and I knew that people knew that that was the case because uh, the Ministry of Defence were very uh, aware of the history of it. And that did put me on my mettle. But otherwise, honestly, I promise you, Carol, doesn't matter whether you're a duke or a dustman. When you get into the House of Commons, you join this great, extraordinary assembly in which you are all equal. The only person who has a seat in the House of Commons, well, the only two people who have seats in the House of Commons actually designated for them are the Prime Minister and the Speaker. Otherwise, you sit where you can. There's no... You're a very, very small cog in a big wheel. So however grand you may think your aspirations are, you come back to being really a, a very ordinary person struggling to make a, a name for yourself in a profession where you stand on the shoulders of giants. Uh, we've had a uh, text in from someone. Uh, it doesn't leave their name, unfortunately, Times. I have to admire Sir Nicholas's honesty 
about his name and his status. Um, Jeffrey Clifton Brown, you you grew up knowing, yes, that your um, grandfather had been a, a speaker in the House of Commons. Your father, as you say, was a councillor. You were always listening to the news. I mean, did you sort of go out campaigning at election times and so on as, as a young man or even as a child? Oh, yes, very much so. Um, we grew up and my next door neighbours were the riders and, and Richard was chief whip. And his father was a fellow councillor with my father, uh, didn't really like canvassing. So Richard and I, at a very young age, sort of I was eight, he was 10, used to go and canvass the roughest bits of, of Haverhill. So I've, I've uh, grown up um, canvassing, uh, it, it's sort of in the blood, as it were. So campaigning is in my blood. But I totally agree with uh, Sir Nicholas. When you uh, make it to the House of Commons, when you're elected, you are a very, very small cog in a big wheel. And you, in everything that you do, you have to achieve for yourself. And much more importantly, you're there to serve uh, and achieve for your constituents. And that's what I've really sought to do all my life, all my political life, is trying to help my constituents in one way or another. And I don't know if you talk to your children of, about politics and going into politics, or if any of them have any ambitions in that direction. Funnily enough, before I came on this programme, somebody asked me that question. I don't see either of my two children at the moment. One's a very bright lawyer. and The other one is busily involved in their, their business. But he, you never know. Uh, it may be as he gets a bit older, he might change. But he, he certainly hasn't been sort of active in the way at a young age that I was. Uh, what about you, uh, Sir Nicholas? Um, well, I've told my children to avoid it like the plague. Don't go in the other bloody place. <laughs> um, uh, it's absolutely appalling career. Um, uh, and, um, you know, it's, it's, I mean, I think what is really the most rewarding thing about the House of Commons, I found, was that I was very lucky that I did have friends, very good friends, on all sides of the House of Commons. I mean, I have many good friends in the Labour Party, many good friends in my own party. I didn't have so many Liberal friends, but I had a few. But I, I really greatly, I loved being, it was a tremendous honour and a great privilege to be a member of Parliament. But at the end of the day, it's N Soames and no one else. And, and um, sure, it was a help to me. Sure, it helped me put a puff of wind in my sail when I was trying to get in. Like everyone else, you need a bit of luck and a bit of a break. But once you're there, honestly, uh, be you near so high the law is left above you. Um, so, Geoffrey Clifton Brown, you're, of course, um, Conservative MP, also a senior figure on the 1922 committee. There's been a, a slight breather uh, over the Christmas and New Year period. Um, do you think that the Prime Minister uh, does now return to the fray in a, a slightly stronger position, given all the questions about his leadership just before Christmas? Or do you think he's going to have a very difficult ride in the coming weeks? Well, what I said on your programme, Carol, um, before Christmas um, was that he needed to go away and have a good break at Christmas and come back in the new year and avoid some of the self-inflicted wounds that we had in the run-up to Christmas. I think he's also been helped so far uh, by uh, the Omicron variant not being as um, uh, uh, difficult, as, 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 as serious 
as perhaps the Delta variant was. And if we can get away with um, not having too many more restrictions and move on from this dreadful pandemic and learn to live with it and start delivering for the people of this country on the really big issues, how you reform the health service, the backlog, how you reform social services, how you start paying the debt that we've incurred over this pandemic, then I think the political landscape will change again. But it is rather in the prime minister's hands and we'll have to wait and see what happens. Um, Sir Nicholas, it's now um, two years since you left the Commons uh, and you, uh, of course, were very much on the opposite side of the fence when it came to Brexit. You uh, were kicked out of the Conservative Party um, because of your stance on Brexit. When you look at how the current Conservative Prime Minister is handling things, um, what's your assessment of how he's doing? Well, I wish the Prime Minister well. And, you know, in his manifesto for election, and in the Conservative manifesto for election, it did not include having to fight the most serious pandemic this country, or possibly the most serious issue this country has faced since 1945. So I don't think we've been able to see the present Prime Minister's true colours yet. I think that he's done as well as anyone could have done fighting this pandemic. Everyone, of course, that one hears and meets, of course, could do it better. Um, uh, and I, I actually think that, you know, there have been, as Jeffrey says, these are, these troubles are self-inflicted wounds, but don't ever underestimate the current prime minister. Don't ever underestimate him. And I wish him well. And I hope when this dreadful pandemic is behind us, that he really will be able to get on with those very exciting programmes that he has, um, which, which really, you know, with a bit of luck, will enable him to govern with great success. But at the moment, it's a dismal picture. It's a dismal scenario. And who would have his job? And do you miss being out of politics, uh, Sir Nicholas? Not for one single day since I walked through the gates for the last time. I loved my time as a member of parliament. I was truly honoured to, 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 to do it. I, I really adored it. I left... I keep in touch with my friends, but I don't miss Parliament at all. And I, I'm afraid that my breach um, with my own party over Brexit meant that the last four or five years that I spent in Parliament were very unhappy, was a very unhappy time. Uh, and I think I still maintain that, you know, all this has yet to settle down and work through the system. So I've gone off and tried to make a new life for myself. But Nothing can ever take away from me uh, that wonderful time I spent there. I loved it and I hope I, I did my little bit. Well, that's all we've got time for today. Join Matt Chorley tomorrow for more politics without the boring bits.